If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're in 1 Corinthians 6, and we're looking this morning at verses 1 through 11. I know that you're going to find it helpful to have a copy of scripture open and reading along with me, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking his blessing on the preaching and the hearing and the keeping and believing and doing of his word this morning as we come to the ministry of the word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask you to remember us. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to remember us for good. We ask you to remember the needs of your church, to remember where we are spiritually, to remember what it is that we need to hear from your word, and we bless you for this portion of scripture that we come to. We bless you that you have spoken it, that you have revealed it by your spirit, that it is your word, it is the very word of the living God, that it is the eternal word, it is the inerrant, inspired word. It is word that convicts and instructs and builds us up in Christ. And so, Father, please do that. Do that in us. Do that for your glory, for the purification and the the beautification of your church, that you would make your church a beautiful and glorious church in the world, that you would make your people to reflect that we have received grace in Jesus Christ, that you would make us to reflect that we have been redeemed out of the world and that we have been sanctified in Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make each one in this room attentive and that you would aid me as your word is preached. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in worship through this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 1, there the Apostle Paul says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word to us this morning. Well, there is a very well-known pastor in our circles who has a very fruitful ministry, has had a very fruitful ministry over the years, and sadly over the last few years has been caught in controversy. A number of disgruntled former ministry partners have 
uh, viciously attack this man for character defects, for flaws, for wrongdoings that, that happened to them in ministry. They have built websites. They have taken it to the Washington Post. And now one of them most recently has said that he's contemplating an $11.2 million settlement for being out of work for three years. Now, there's something very wrong with that. Even if the man that they are upset at did things inappropriately, didn't handle things properly, the scriptures are exceedingly clear that that's not how Christians handle things. There have been attempts made for these men to be reconciled, for mediators to come. Many of those that are setting up websites who are threatening to sue are unwilling to sit down with a mediator unless they get their way, unless they get their terms met, unless things are handled on their terms, in their way, and they are vindicated first. That's not what the Apostle Paul says. Now, this passage may seem sort of far removed from us. It may, we may think, well, I don't see anybody in this small congregation suing people, and I don't see people uh, sue happy. I don't see people ready to get caught up in litigation for things and, and ready to take their brother or their sister, let alone an unbeliever, around them to court. Now, let me say a few things at the outset. Paul is not saying that legal systems are wrong. This apostle Paul will actually honor the governments of the world. He will actually tell you to submit to those governing authorities, to pay your taxes, to do things decently and in order. Paul's not saying that law as a profession is wrong. You know, everybody likes to, to speak ill about lawyers until you need one. And then we like lawyers. Lawyers have a place in this world. What Paul, what Paul is teaching in this is that Christians have been redeemed out of the world and Christians belong to something bigger and better and higher. Christians are citizens of heaven. Christians are saints, he will call them here. Christians ought to live as saints in the world. Christians ought to do things differently than the world does them. And there are lots of implications. There are lots of nuances that Paul puts in here explaining why it's wrong for Christians to go to court against one another. And why Christians who have been given everything by Jesus Christ and are complete in him and have massive privileges and have massive resources ought to know what they have and ought to live like saints in the world. And Paul will intimate that when Christians do what they do, taking a brother or sister to court with one another, the world sees that and that is hurting the gospel. And that's hurting the cause of Christ in the world. And that's hurting what Jesus wants for his church, his bride, in this world. We'll notice, as we've been seeing in this book, that the Corinthians were a judgmental people. The word judge in this book shows up about 40 times, nine times in this chapter. And what we see is that the Corinthians were a people that loved to judge. They were a people that loved to judge the world, to judge other churches, to judge other ministers. And the one thing they didn't want to judge, as we saw last week, was the, the sinful practices of one another in the church. But they wanted to judge everything else. And here we see they wanted to judge brothers and sisters in the church, not to see them purified in the church, not to see them build up, as we saw last week, but to see them brought into courts and to get their way. And probably the issue that they're dealing with was over a small sum of money, a few dollars. Notice there in verses 9 through 11 that when Paul sets out this list of all these things that that if you practice these things, you will not go to heaven. If these are characteristic of your life, he actually says there, the thieves and the greedy and the swindlers. It's probably an intimation that they're taking one another to court to get some perceived due financial gain. 
something's been held back. Somebody hasn't paid somebody. Maybe somebody hired somebody in the congregation and they didn't pay up. So they're taking each other to court. And notice Paul intimates that it's a trivial thing. Notice verse 2. He says, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? These things are trivial in light of eternity. These things are trivial in light of what we have in Jesus. And that if our perspective was right, Paul will actually say throughout this chapter, do you not know, do you not know, do you not know, verse 2, verse 3, verse 15 and following, do you not know, do you not know, do you not know, in other words, have you forgotten, have you forgotten that you're saints, have you forgotten that you're going to judge the world? Have you forgotten that you're going to judge angels? Have you forgotten that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Have you forgotten that you were washed and justified and sanctified in Jesus Christ? And at the heart of everything that Paul is going to say is that he is going to tell them that they have forgotten. When the saints forget what they are and have in Christ, they fail to live as those in Christ, and the apostle comes with that grand emphatic, do you not know? We're going to see two things this morning. First, we're going to see the nature of this quarreling in Corinth. And then secondly, we're going to see the warning against the quarreling in Corinth. First, the nature of the quarreling in Corinth. And then we're going to see the warning. Well, as I've said already, this is a, a quarrel over lawsuits. And Paul makes that very clear at the beginning. In, in, in your English translation, it may say when one of you has a grievance against another. It ought to be if one of you has a grievance against another. And the word that Paul uses for if is a word that carries with it, it ought not be so. If one of you has a grievance, you shouldn't have grievances. The thought of the apostle is you should not have grievances against one another. It's unnatural for people that have been redeemed to have grievances with one another. It's natural for people that haven't been redeemed to have grievances against one another. It ought to be unnatural. It ought to be inappropriate for Christians to have grievances. Jesus says, if your brother has something against you, go to him. If you have something against someone, you're to go and be reconciled. You're to tell your fault. You're to pursue peace as much as it depends on you with all men. It's very clear. There's nothing worse among Christians than turmoil. There's nothing worse than when one party won't in humility and meekness be reconciled to another party. Yes, things happen. I'm not saying you don't go and and you don't call a brother or sister to repent. Jesus says we should. But there's nothing worse than when one Christian harbors bitterness and malice and an unwillingness to receive a brother or sister because what it shows is that that person does not know how sinful they are and that person does not know how much they've been forgiven of. Let me say that again. When a Christian is not humble and receptive and forgiving of others who have wronged them, that person is proud and does not understand the gospel what Jesus says, right? If you don't forgive another, you're not forgiven. You won't be forgiven. You don't understand your need. Think of that account where Jesus is at the house of Simon, the Pharisee, and the sinful woman comes, and she's weeping at the back of his feet, and she's washing his feet with her hair and with the tears, and she knows that he's the Savior, and she knows that she's sinful. And Simon thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was, that she's a sinner. And Jesus, knowing his thought, said to him, Simon, let me ask you a question. Her sins, he'll say to him, her sins, which were many, are forgiven her, and she loves much because she's forgiven of much. 
while this man, the self-righteous Pharisee, thought he was better, didn't even give Jesus water, didn't give him a foot washing, didn't do anything. She came in, she washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She put herself down in humility because she understood she was a sinner. The point is not that she was a greater sinner than Simon. She knew she was a sinner and Simon thought he wasn't. And you know, when believers have grievances against one another and they go to law against another, at the very heart of that is a self-righteousness and a lack of acknowledging personal sinfulness. You know, the world will mock Christians for despising themselves and, and whipping themselves with guilt. The Bible says it's when a Christian knows that they are guilty and sinful is when they flee to Christ and when they become the most gracious, loving, wise, humble, beautiful people in this world. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone that has humbled themselves under the gospel, knows they need forgiveness, and is therefore merciful and gracious to others. And notice Paul's essentially saying, if you, if you have a grievance against another, does anyone dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul is angry. I don't know if you can hear the tone. And we talk about hearing tones in emails. Don't ever write somebody in an email if they write you something attacking you. Because they will read a tone into that. I think it's okay for us to read a tone here. Paul is angry. Paul is heated. Paul is heated over the issue here in Corinth. He's upset. This is a church that he had birthed, as it were, as a church planner. This is a church that he had instructed. This is the church that he had brought the gospel to. This is a church that had received grace. This is a church of people who had been brought out of a pagan world, who had been redeemed graciously, who had known the grace of Jesus Christ, and now... They're going at each other's throats in court. And Paul, as you can tell in anger and astonishment, is saying, how can you do this? How can you live like this? You know, I have a friend who would say, Christians, and I think I said this to you last week, Christians ought never to be astonished at the way unbelievers act. But Christians ought to be astonished at the way believers act often. We may not be astonished at the way that unbelievers act because they do what they do because they're unbelievers. We ought to be astonished at the way that Christians act and we ourselves act. And Paul is astonished. And Paul is setting out the nature of this quarrel and he's, he's saying that, uh, that they should basically be able to deal with these things with one another and that really at the end of the day what they've done as I said already is that they have forgotten they have forgotten what they are notice notice what he calls them in verse one he says dare dare he go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints notice what is Paul doing Paul could have said believers he could have said the church he could have called those Christians in Corinth by a number of titles, but he uses that grand title of saint. That's at the beginning of this book. Remember, they are the saints in Corinth. They are sanctified in Christ. And he's saying, look, why would you go to unbelievers to deal with your disputes when you are saints? You're saints. You go to the saints. You go to those that God has redeemed and set apart and equipped to deal with issues in a Christian, biblical, Christ-centered way. And so he reminds them in the first place, The nature of their problem was that they forgot what they were. I want to put this to you this morning. If you forget that you're a saint, you will not live like a saint. You don't live like a saint to become a saint. You become a saint in Jesus, and then you live like a saint because he's made you a saint. 
If you forget that you're a saint, if you forget that those around you are saints, not some special group of holy people that did a whole lot of things and have a whole lot of super irrigated works and some big bank for other less spiritual people, but that all of you are saints. And when you remember that you're saints, you will live like saints. And when you forget that you're a saint, you will not live like a saint. Imagine if you forgot what you are. If you forgot who you were, you would not live like you if you forgot who you were. You would not live like a saint if you forget what a saint is. That's very significant. So Paul says to them, why don't you go to the saints? And then notice he uses it again in verse two. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And so he's saying, listen, this is what's characteristic of saints. Saints are set apart by Christ. And then he tells them, you've forgotten the privileges of saints. What do saints get to do? What has been given to saints? What difference does it make that you're a saint? He says, the saints will judge the world. Now, remember, the Corinthians love judging. They were a judgmental church. And he says, okay, listen, you love sinful judgment. Have you forgotten? There is a judgment day. And Jesus said that whoever overcame by faith in his blood would sit with him on his father's throne and would judge the world just as he overcame. And all judgment has been given to the son. There is a day coming when all true believers will stand with Jesus. And as judgment is pronounced on a wicked and unbelieving world, they will be there judging with him. Even now, the Bible says that we're with him, seated in the heavenly places on the throne of God. That if you're a believer, you are united to Jesus by faith. You are seated there with him. He is representing you. When he pronounces judgment on judgment day, he is doing that with his people, with his redeemed humanity. Why would you go to a world that Jesus is going to judge and that you are going to judge with him? Why would you go to them to deal with things in Jesus' church when you're going to be with Jesus, judging with him? That's what Paul's saying. And then notice, he argues from the lesser to the greater. It's not just the world you're going to judge. He says, do you not know? Have you forgotten that the saints will judge angels? Now, what is Paul doing? Paul is taking every rational being that God has created that is subject to God's moral government, and he is saying, Jesus is going to judge them one day, men and angels. Notice he leaves the animals out. All dogs don't go to heaven. Don't get mad at me. I think there may be dogs in heaven, but I don't know that all dogs go there. They don't have souls. Men and angels will be judged by Jesus, and men and angels will be judged by the saints. Now, what does that mean? That means that the most powerful, the most influential spirit beings that God has ever created will be subject to your judgment if you are a believer with Jesus Christ on judgment day and that means the devil our great enemy Romans 16:20 the apostle Paul says the god of peace will shortly crush satan under your feet that's an allusion to Genesis 3:15 Christ crushed satan's head one day the god of peace will crush satan under your feet Romans 16:20 I want to read to you what Jonathan Edwards says about this. Edwards says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Now shall he be, as it were, subdued under the church's feet? Shall Satan be subdued under the church's feet? Satan, when he first tempted our first parents to fall, deceitfully and lyingly told them they should be as gods. Listen to this. Satan lied to our first parents and told them, 
if you disobey God, you'll become as gods. But little did he think that the consequence should be that they should indeed and be so much as gods to be assessors with God to judge. That what Satan did in deceiving our first parents was said, you will be like God. And what God does in redemption is he said, you will be with me in judgment. You will be with me in judgment. And the one who brought deceit and falsehood and all of the lies and all of the wickedness into this world will be judged by the saints with Christ. Now that means... That means that the privileges you have as saints ought to keep you from going to a fallen, unbelieving world to resolve your problems in the church. That's what that means. That means that you ought to understand the privileges and the position and the status that you have in Jesus Christ. That those things ought to make you be patient. And, you know, that day's coming. That day's not now. We don't get to go around and judge the world now. We will on Judgment Day. We don't get to do that now. But that day's coming. We can be patient. Paul will actually say to them, why don't you even be wronged? Notice that in verse 7 and 8. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? Look, you can take a wrong now. You can even lose money now. You can lose thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars now because you will be with Jesus in glory and you will judge the world and every wrong will be made right. You don't have to take it into your hand to make every wrong right. That's what Paul's saying. It is not given to you now to make every wrong right, and you can be confident that one day God will make every wrong right. I think it was Augustine who said, there's enough justice in the fallen world. There's enough justice. It's not perfect justice by any stretch of the imagination. There's enough justice to show us that God will execute perfect justice one day, and there's enough mercy in the world to show us that one day God will be merciful to all his people perfectly, fully, forever. That all of those things will be manifested one day when God sends his son back to consummate all things. And so Paul has reminded them who they are. He's reminded them of their privileges. And then third, he reminds them of the neglect of their resources. Now follow me closely. Notice what Paul says. He says, after reminding them of those things, he says to them, Listen, I say this to your shame, verse 5. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? You think yourself so wise. You, you've had all your eloquent teachers. You've had all this worldly wisdom. You think you're better than all the churches. And yet you're, you're resolving issues in a, a secular court. You don't even have a wise man among you who, who can resolve this dispute. I don't know that he means elders. I think maybe he means elders, but... Paul is scorning the the sinfulness of this church that they wouldn't even seek out if they had a man that was wise enough. Like with the wisdom of Solomon, that God gives that kind of wisdom to divide between those difficult cases, that he gives ministers to the church to help to decide between difficult cases, men who know the word, men who can execute righteousness and who can give good counsel and advice. And Paul says, look, you've been given everything. You're going to judge the world. You're saints. You don't even have one wise man that can deal with this. What that means is that for us as a church, we may come to a point. You know what? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to delude you at all. I think if God allowed Satan to have his way with this church, if the Lord withdrew his hand for just a time, 
that we would have division all over the place in this little congregation. You know why I believe that? Because every New Testament church, with the apostles as their pastors, had those problems. And we see the sinfulness of men, and I just saw a friend walk away from the faith and embrace false teaching, leave a ministry, and go to a church that teaches another gospel. And I see men leave their wives who were in ministry, who had families, young children, faithful PCA pastors leaving their families. And I am not so deceived to think that (laughs) division and strife couldn't happen to this body. And when and if it does, we need to come here. We need to seek out wise men. We need to find a saint who can help resolve disputes. We need to be humble. We need to be willing to take wrongs. That's the nature of the problem in Corinth. That's been given to us so that when we're facing that, when we're facing that, we'll handle that in a God-honoring biblical way. Well, secondly, Paul tells now the church, he warns them. He warns a quarreling church. And notice what he does in verse 9 through 11 in in one of those more searching and even frightening passages of Scripture. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, remember, we've talked about deception. We've talked about self-deception already in our study here. Paul is again telling them that deception is the great problem of the church. This church was deceived. They were deceived into thinking they deserved better. They had to get their rights vindicated. They had to get their due. They had to get their few dollars from their brother that was keeping it back. They They couldn't take a wrong. They had to get it. They were greedy. They were covetous. And they were swindlers. And Paul says, listen, do not forget, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let me say this. Paul is not saying people that attempt to establish goodness and righteousness go to heaven. The Bible is written against that mindset. Those that attempt to establish goodness and righteousness and reject the righteousness of Christ by faith do not go to heaven. But what Paul's saying is, Don't think that you can live any way that you want to live and that there are no consequences. And if you're a professing Christian and you are living in these sins and notice the totality of these sins, he says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Don't think that somehow you can keep living in sin, living in sin, living in sin, living in sin, and that you will go to heaven. And notice that Paul is concerned that They're not deceiving themselves. I want to read to you um, a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, Everywhere the Bible warns us against this terrible danger of being deceived. Indeed, we can put it like this, that the case of the Bible from beginning to end is that man is in ignorance because he has been deceived. The whole story of the human race has gone wrong because man has been deceived by the devil. Go back to Genesis 3. There it is. God makes the world, makes man perfect, puts him in paradise. Well, he should have lived happily. He should have enjoyed the companionship of God, and he'd have been given the gift of immortality. And that would have been the story, but that isn't the story. The story has been one of unhappiness, jealousy, envy, murder, wars, all the horrors that are depicted in the Bible and that we are familiar with in secular history. Why is the history of the human race and the history of the world been what it has been? The Bible says there's only one answer. The devil came in. We are told that the devil was more subtle, that he was more subtle than every beast of the field, and that it was in his subtlety and deceitfulness that he deceived Adam and Eve. And you know what? Today, when men say, you know what? Homosexuality is not wrong. Adultery is not always wrong. Doing this little corrupt thing in business isn't always wrong. 
you are continuing to embrace the deceit that Satan brought into the world when he said, did God indeed say? Has God really said? Has God really said sexual immorality will exclude me from heaven? Has God really said idolatry, covetousness, greed, drunkenness, rebellion, that that will exclude me from heaven? Now let me say in this warning, Paul does something very interesting in verse 11. He doesn't just bring this searching conviction. He does hold that out. He does want you to know. He wants you to know. He wants you not to be deceived. But notice what he does. In verse 11, there is such a sweet turn of the gospel. He says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. That's what we were. We were those things. We did those things. We lived in those things. We delighted in those things. We brought others into those things. We wanted others to experience those things with us. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying there's hope for any who has lived in these things, that there is gospel hope, that for the church, for people that have professed faith in Jesus, that you need to remember that that's what you were, but you have been washed and sanctified and justified, that what Jesus did at Calvary was sufficient for your justification, your sanctification, for your cleansing, for freedom from sin's power, from forgiveness of sin's guilt, that everything was done for you, that the Spirit of God was given to you, that you were regenerate, that you were cleansed, that the the Spirit renewed you. Now let me say this as I close. Paul sets out the nature of the quarrel in Corinth And then he tells them the problem was they forgot what they were, they forgot their privileges, and they forgot their resources. Then Paul gives them a warning, and then he says, know who you are in Christ. He does the same thing in the two sections of this text. The problem was you forgot who you are in Christ, you forget the privileges you have in Christ, you forget the resources you have from Christ. And then he says, don't be deceived, you're not going to go to heaven if you practice these things and live in these things, but know You have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in Christ, so that the way forward, and let me say this, listen very carefully, the way forward, the way to avoid what the Corinthians fell into is to know, believe, and be assured of those things. It's the same message, isn't it? Every time. Why? Remember what Luther said when his people came and he said, why do you always preach justification? Because you always forget. Because you always forget. That's what Paul's saying. Do you not know that you're a saint? Do you not know that you're going to judge the world in angels? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but that you have been washed and sanctified and justified? Do you not know that? You know, as a closing application, the more I've read the Bible the more I've realized that having your mind renewed through the scriptures and the truths that we've heard, the more that you have right thinking, the more you will have right living. The more you have right thinking, the more you will have right living. It's possible to have right thinking and wrong living. You have to have faith in Jesus. The spirit has to be operating in your life. But it's impossible to have wrong thinking and right living. Let me say that again. The Corinthians forgot. They had wrong thinking. They had wrong living. Paul says, do you not know? Know who you are in Christ. 
think the right thoughts after God out of his word about who you are in Christ. And you know what will happen when we have disputes, when we have difficulties? They'll have a way of working themselves out. I have some very close friends. I've had some big fights with them. As you know, the closer you are to people, the more heated things can get. I've had some throw-down-on-the-mat fights. And some of those are some of my best friends in the world because we come to each other and we say, hey, I was wrong, will you forgive me? That was awful, I love you, I value your friendship, you're a brother in Christ. And our friendship grows stronger and stronger and stronger. And then we have less and less and less of those fights because we value more and more and more what we are and what we have together in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's saying to the church. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this sweet word. Though we look at these troubles and we know our own strife and our own difficulties and our own contentions that often arise and we are grieved over those and we don't want those. Heavenly Father, we don't want them in our fellowship. We don't want them in our homes and our marriages and our friendships. We know that they oftentimes have a way of springing up. And so we pray that you would help us to remember these things, that you would give us right thinking about what it means for us to be saints and what privileges we have that we will judge angels in the world. Oh God, we pray that you would be merciful to us, that you would make us to know that we have been washed and justified and sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus that you would give us more of your Holy Spirit, that you would cause our minds to be renewed by the scriptures. Father, make us quick to be humble. Make us willing to be wronged. Father, we pray that you would take all the truths of this passage and that you would cause them to live in us and to transform us and to change us by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.